0: Man, it is, it is so good to be back. Table, seriously, you guys are, y'all are family to me. I always feel so at home here and uh, so warmly received. Boy, the room is really filled up, by the way. Everybody in the back, good to see you, people against the wall. Hey, um, I was thinking, by the way, um, not that I feel like that anything is cosmically ordered around me, but it does make me a bit nervous. The last time I came here, I literally flew in the same day as that horrible display of white supremacy in Charlottesville, and this time I came in the day after the government shut down, and I'm starting to feel like there's a common denominator, <laughs> so like, like, maybe if I just don't come, there'll be less calamity in the area, I'm not sure, um, but it's, it really is uh, wonderful to be back with you, I do, uh, before we get to the message, just to say a little bit about tonight, I am very excited to have the light of my life here with me. Uh, Nicole Norderman. Uh, if you haven't heard her music before, then you're missing out. Dove award-winning, Grammy-nominated. That's true now. Uh, she's she's extraordinary, and I, I I say without hesitation, one of the great singer-songwriters of our time. I was a huge fan of her music long before I knew her. So um, I wrote a book called How to Survive a Shipwreck. Some of you guys are familiar with the book. Um, we've come up with these little events that we're doing called Shipwreck Survivor, which really are just kind of all about uh, dealing with lost, Trauma, grief on any level, if you're going through something or someone close to you is going through something. uh, Just trying to to put some resources out there to, um, from a Jesus perspective, to walk through some of those things. Part of the catalyst for this, Nicole, after she read Shipwreck, wrote an amazing song called Hush Hush. It's just. Devastating, And uh, just kind of from the beginning, open up some possibilities for me of what it would look like for us to do some things together. So if you want to join us, um, admission is free. Um, I do want to say just publicly how much it means that uh, N- Nicole would support me in all this because she's a very busy person these days, and right now is in the midst of the Moxie Matters tour with Jen Hatmaker. They're still now all over the place, so the fact that she'd come and take a weekend out to be here with me doing this is no small thing. So I uh, hope you can come out tonight at 7. That's going to be a good time. Um, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know y'all have been spending a little time in First Corinthians uh, 6 and 7. I never use my laptop for preaching, but I was tweaking things up to the last minute, so I hope you'll um, give me a little grace here. You know, um, I love this series that you're doing. I love being able to be part of it. I will say in all honesty, full disclosure, right, that when um, Kevin and I talked about me, me speaking on this particular weekend, I, I had a little bit of hesitation just because, quite honestly, I mean, it's the Swipe Right series on dating and sex and relationships and I am a divorced person. It's still weird to say that I'm a divorced person, but I'm a divorced person, especially coming up the way that I did. That wasn't an outcome I ever could have imagined for my life. I don't have biological children and so I don't know, I just kind of thought like maybe I'm not the right guy for that job and uh, Kevin's response to that was, well, you know, if it's a little bit messy, that's good. Like, the gospel is messy, that's good. Well, okay. Um, I do believe that you know so I don't know it's it does feel providential to be here on a number of different levels and uh, partly because these issues are so charged and because they are complicated and messy you know I I really prayed about this sermon and and that's unusual because I don't normally pray about my sermons and (laughs) that really was intended to be a joke but but what, um, I do pray about my sermons, but I will say this, I've been preaching for 20 years, basically, and um, I I did feel like I really had to pray through this one, and uh, wanted some grace, and wanted some perspective, and definitely feel like the Lord gave me some things for you. Uh, I, I don't know, for whatever the reason, I feel like whenever I come here, I always feel like there's something kind of burning on my heart, uh, so we'll see where all that goes, but I don't want to give too many disclaimers. Let's just pray for just a moment. We'll dive right into some text here momentarily. But God, thank you for the grace of these people that you've raised up in this um, amazing city. And uh, God, I just, for the witness of this people to the work of your kingdom. Lord, we are in a time in which we are confused. And there are so many conflicting signals from culture, Uh, even from within ourselves, and we know that especially when it comes to all things around love and romance and relationships, uh, it's just a time that seems full of so much ambiguity. So we just ask for you to shed your light on us, and that these things that are so human, these things that are so essential, uh, God, that... uh, oftentimes honestly are so personal that we don't want to talk about them in church we'd prefer to just kind of compartmentalize in a way we just pray for your light now God to take all those things that are in darkness and bring them into the presence of the one who perfectly knows us and sees us and sees all of us and cares about every details every detail of our lives we just ask now that you would illuminate the path for us illuminate your word Allow us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. So since we've been dealing with myths about dating, sexuality, relationships, here's the myth I want to debunk this morning. I don't know how you're going to feel about this. I want to tackle the myth that romantic love sexuality, dating, marriage. I want to tackle the myth that what you do with that part of your life is the most important defining feature of your life. Sexuality is important. And as Pastor Kevin taught the first week, we are created good while we were fallen. In the fallen world, God created us to be good. But however important sexuality is and however important and holy and cherished our bodies are, Sexuality is not everything. And this idea even that the chief pursuit of our lives is supposed to be finding the perfect partner, finding that right person. And if we do that, and if we make the right choice in that way, then everything else is just gonna fall into place because that is the cosmically important thing. And everything else about who we are and what we do, Ah. You know, just, that's, that's kind of neither here nor there. This is so foreign to the teaching of the New Testament, which in and of itself I feel like is a funny phrase, the teaching of the New Testament, because <laughs> here's another little myth for you. Another myth <laughs> that I'm not going to spend the whole sermon on is the idea that the New Testament has one set of, like, uh, very clear, coherent teaching on relationships and sexuality. If you think that the New Testament has a kind of a monolithic witness about those things, you are are desperately wrong. I mean, we could look, for example, at some of the epistles, at some of Paul's in particular, and there are several examples where Paul will use something like, or someone writing under Paul's name in a couple of letters that are disputed, um, but there are a couple letters in which we have these, uh, the, the format we would call them is a household code. And in those texts, it would seem like that the epistles sort of underwrite this idea that, you know, you need to have a super ordered home and you need to have a super ordered family and leaders in the church need to be good leaders in the home, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we have that kind of witness in the New Testament. But then we also have things like Jesus in Matthew 11 saying, uh, verses 34 through 37, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. Like, how often I'm just... It makes me laugh a little bit because, and I don't even think this is all bad, but I feel like especially like in modern church life, more contemporary churches, by and large, and please, I'm not hating here, okay? There are just so often built around, we want to help you build a strong, successful family. And programs are all about family ministry. And it's so common that single people will not feel like they can find their way in a lot of churches because they're so oriented around families that you would think, that the whole focus of human existence is to have a stable family with 2.5 kids and that the church only exists to help ensure that reality is as strong as possible. I think That's all that church is for is to make sure that your family life is as stable as possible. How in a context like that, what do you do with the text? Like Jesus says, I've come to set sons and daughters against their parents and against in-laws. And if anybody doesn't hate father or mother, they can't, be my disciple. These are challenging, challenging texts. In the midst of all of this, I know we've been spending a lot of time with them the last few weeks, is the Apostle Paul. And I think Paul is an especially, especially fascinating figure because Paul, on the one hand, uh, who, you know, also a complex dude. Like, uh, I feel like, depending on how people read Paul, um, you have people over the centuries, and I think there's a, uh, th- this is credible. You know, in one way, Paul ca- has these sort of ascetic... Tendencies, And, of course, he himself is not married. Uh, So sometimes, you know, in the history of the church, that's been what's focused on. But I think especially more in kind of a 20th century uh, American context, I feel like Paul largely got reinvented as as kind of a romantic. And uh, even though he wasn't married, people think of him as like the marriage and family guy. And partly they think that because of that beautiful text that we have in Ephesians 5. I mean, Paul has... Uh, what I think is the most elegant passage in all of scripture about uh, romantic love. And that is this passage where he he just, in, in very lofty poetic language, he compares the narrative of how a man loves a woman and how a woman loves a man to the way that Christ loves the church. And it's breathtaking. It's beautiful. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's uplifting. And if that was the only teaching that you had from Paul about marriage, if that was all that you had, you'd say like, yeah, well, man, I, yeah, th- th- this is clearly the most important thing because it's the marriage context in which God's love for the church is revealed. And there's a real way, I, I just want to stress that that is true. I do believe that God's love is uniquely revealed in the context of Christian marriage. But outside of Ephesians 5, you've got the rest of Paul, <laughs> In which, if, and I want to try to do this as eloquently as possible, if I were to try to define Paul's attitude towards romantic relationships in the rest of the New Testaments, I would basically sum it up this way. Meh. <laughs> Paul's attitude about all of it is basically, meh. I mean, really. I mean, he, he, about as non-romantic, about as utilitarian as you can possibly get. So 1 Corinthians chapter seven, uh, and I know I think you looked at the, maybe the first half of this text the, the, the first week, but I'm gonna go to verse 20. Paul says, and this is kind of a lot of scripture, but track with me if you would. I feel like this is important. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians seven, verse 20, let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you gain your freedom, Make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Now concerning virgins... I have no command of the Lord. By the way, I've always thought that would be a great name for a band, Now Concerning Virgins. I don't know why, it just sounds like a punk rock band to me, just trying to give you ideas. But I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the impending crisis, this is, we'll get back to that in a second, but this is interesting. I think that in view of the impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. This is super romantic, don't you think? You free? Stay free. Are you married? Stay married. But if you do marry, you do not sin. And if a virgin married, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life. And I would spare you that. (laughs) I don't know why that never hit me as funny as it did in this moment. It is especially funny, though, when you think of Paul as the great romantic, that he's the one who says, I would spare you that if I could. Footnote, by the way, because I know that you don't necessarily do this here, but, you know, a lot of, like, mainline churches and, you know, Catholic and Anglican churches, of course, will preach from the lectionary text. These next couple verses are actually the lectionary reading for today, and I would love to know who's preaching on these verses from the lectionary because I'm guaranteeing you that almost everybody's gonna skip these today. I mean, brothers and sisters, that's verse 29, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though who had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no possessions. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, about how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord so they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about, uh, I'm so sorry, I just lost my place. There we go, about the affairs of the world and how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his fiance, if his passions are strong, and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It is no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under, being under no constraint, having his desire under control, and has, discerned, has dis- determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiance, he will do well. So then he who marries his fiance does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. By the way, I think that's meant to be read as like um, as smart as it sounds. <laughs> Paul, who is the, of course the apostle, I know some of you think you got the Holy Spirit, but I as the apostle Paul who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, I too have the spirit of God. In case anybody, in case anybody else thinks there was. This text, I just think, is such a provocative one for the moment that we're in because, you know, uh, and, and, and this is walking such a fine line because for those of us that have families, well, okay, all of us have a family in some form or another, right? Family is such a precious gift. And how we love our parents, how we love our spouses, how we love our kids, all of that matters so much. And yet, I would make the case that there is a clear thread through all of scripture that as important as family is family is not enough family is not enough in fact God told uh, Abraham at the beginning leave your family (laughs) leave the place that you come from And, and the overarching story of scripture is about how God starting with Abraham and this is where the narrative moved forwards from there it's this whole story about how God calls people beyond the interest of their immediate families. God calls people beyond the immediate, most pressing interest of the people that they love into this broader and more spacious place, into this larger ecosystem where it's not just about you and your family, it's about the entire family of God. It's about a movement of justice and mercy and peacemaking that is so profound and so pervasive that the covenant that God makes to Abraham is that through you ultimately, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blessed one man's family, but it was never about his family. It was about all the families. Not just families, plural, but that big family And I think this is especially challenging for us because in a a time like the one that we're living in, as complex as it is, of course it feels like that the best you can possibly do most days is to try to do right by your own family, by your own people, right? You just, just do the best that you can to do right by them in some form and hope that everything else is gonna work out just right. I can't fix the problems of the world. I can't fix the broader problems of D.C. I've just got this one little parcel of land, me and mine, and so we hunker down together, we're going to figure it out, and we're going to do the best we can. Hopefully, God will bless us in some way. You know, I heard a great story. uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a wonderful New Testament professor, tells a story about how he had given a message at a conference, and I think this is so genius and so kind of vintage for him, the message he gave at a, at a conference was called God Doesn't Like Families. And his point in all of this, and I mean, he, you know, he's a person, of course, who's married with lots of kids and grandchildren He love, but the point of this was this, how the, the story, the, you know, of Scripture, the call of God is always like to, to go beyond family, you know, and to this, into this broader perspective, right? So, God Doesn't Like Family was the name of the talk, and a local church had brought him in and wanted him to do Kind of a version of this, and so apparently they thought that they had, um, you know, the title was so provocative, they thought they had misread it. So he gets to the church on a Sunday morning, and what's printed in the program and on the screen is not God does it like family, but God like families. (laughs) Hear that? God like families. So he gets up to give the sermon, and the first thing he says is he points to the title and is like, this right here, this is the problem that I want to address. (laughs) God-like families, you know, who's right to it? God doesn't like family. You know, the, the, goodness, I don't want to make that too pronounced because, of course, the flip side of this is that we've all seen and know what the, the danger of people can become so zealous about some great mission in the world or to save the world that they neglect the relationships that are most fundamental to them. Now, of course, that's not right. Of course, we're called to be followers of Jesus in all of those contexts. But the thing that I wanna stress this morning that I feel like is so true to the spirit of the Apostle Paul, and, and I feel like is, um, is especially just necessary in this moment, like, I just wanna maybe help us do a little bit of triage here, you know? Because I, I, I do think, and I don't know where everybody is in, in their journey. I mean, I look at a, at a room like this, it's, it's very diverse, ethnically, age-wise, people in all, like, all places along the spectrum. And I've got to imagine that, um, because this is true for most people in most places, that there are many of you who are in some kind of a place of discernment, trying to figure out what you're gonna do in your most fundamental relationships, who you're supposed to be with, who you're supposed to marry, if you're supposed to be married, all those kinds of things. And part of what, there's just so much weight on that particular question, that I feel like if if we just sort of move with the tide of culture, and when I say culture here, I don't just mean secular culture, I mean, church culture too. Evangelical culture in particular, there's such an emphasis on like matters of family that I feel like it can become like the all-consuming pursuit. Like, I, just, I gotta get this right because this is the most important decision. And I think again, according to the Apostle Paul, this is not necessarily the most important decision. See, that's part of what's so revolutionary about the teaching of Jesus is that no matter who you are, whether you're married or single, in context of this passage, whether or not you're slave or free, Jew or Greek, no matter where you come from, no matter what your status in life, the most important thing in God's economy is that you live your life for the sake of this broader movement called the kingdom of God. All of us are called to that. And no matter what your status is maritally, whether or not you feel like you found the cosmic right person for you, all of us are called to be part of that broader mission. That's the thing that's supposed to define us. So that's another thing that I feel like would be kind of a myth from a New Testament perspective is the idea that romantic love is supposed to be the thing that most defines us. And by the way, I'm feeling like kind of a jerk right now because I realize that this, please understand the point, of course, is not to say that like romantic love is not an awesome thing. Oh, it's an, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. It's an extraordinary gift. It's just not everything. And when life is ordered around that or ordered around that pursuit, there's so many other things that, I just feel like we need the counter witness of the Apostle Paul here that I think would say, hey, 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 wait, wait just a minute. I mean, one of the things I will say that makes this text a little bit awkward, maybe, and I don't want to just drive by this, did you note that part where Paul said, considering the impending crisis that's about to come? Now, uh, there is no getting around this. If you read the letters of the New Testament, and this is certainly true with the, the Apostle Paul, there is an apocalyptic quality to these letters. There is an expectation that this Jesus of Nazareth, who God has sent, that we crucified, but God is now raised from the dead, that he's about to come back at any moment. There is that sense of apocalyptic expectation. That is there to be sure. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think we could read this a couple different ways. I mean, there are some people who would say Paul was looking for the imminent expectation of the return of Christ, and he was just wrong. Jesus didn't come back then. But I also think, you know, that there are reasons to believe potentially that some of the apocalyptic expectation that Paul had might not just have been about the return of Christ, but other things that were about to happen. I don't have time to like, go into all this, but there, there's certainly an apocalyptic urgency, like a quality of this letter. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's fair to say that what you're really getting, First Corinthians uh, 7, that, you, know, you don't have to really read between the lines here. Paul's basically saying, since Jesus is about to come back any day, why don't y'all just stay exactly where you are? If you're not married, you just, you just stay there if you're married, stay married. Great, but just but there's there's that expectation for the return of Christ. Now, I'm not approaching all that from the same perspective I would have when I was a lot younger. Um, we'll save it for another sermon for me to talk about eschatology and all those kinds of things. I'm not quite on the the left behind train that I was on when I was when I was young, right? But I will tell you this, as a person who is kind of on the far side of, of a lot of unhealthy apocalyptic teaching, you know, I, I, I was that kid who always thought, like, if my parents had stepped out of the room for five seconds, they'd been raptured and I'd been left behind, and that Antichrist was going to lob off my head. They showed great movies to us at youth camp in, like, the second grade. Scarred me for life. Have nightmares about these things now. That's actually true. I mean, it was... You know, a lot of that kind of baggage in my, in my past, and I don't think about all those things the same way, but I will tell you I am reconnecting in some ways with some of these texts in the New Testament that give, and a sense, of, of apocalyptic urgency. You know, and I because I, I don't know a better way to say this than to say this, and I have no idea how any of this translates. Like, whether or not... And I do believe that Jesus is one day coming again. But whether or not Jesus comes back before breakfast, I do feel like that there are certain seasons in history that are uniquely apocalyptic in nature. The word apocalypse simply means to reveal or to unveil. I think there are some seasons in history that are uniquely apocalyptic. There's a lot of things that are being revealed. There are a lot of things that are being unveiled in some way. And uh, Part of what's unpleasant about that is that in apocalyptic time things are being revealed that aren't necessarily pleasant things and I think whether we talk about the we've been on a dark journey around race in this country for a very long time but I think most people can agree this season has been an especially intense one not because something new is happening but because very old things are constantly being revealed old things we're, we're having to look at them stuff that was a little bit under the ground actually not that underground but a little bit under the ground is very above ground right now and same thing is happening I believe with the me too movement and all of that <laughs> stuff that we want to keep in the closet and like say, like, like not talk about all oh, things are being revealed it feels like such an apocalyptic time and I'm not trying to fit that onto like an end times chart and graph here. Like I'm not getting into any of that business. I don't think anybody needs to get into any of that business. But what I do want to say is that I feel like that apocalyptic time is always an extraordinary time for the church. And I think that there are some seasons more so than others that cause that kind of call for unique diligence that call for us to be uniquely prayerful. And I think, especially in a time when so much is shifting, this is one of those moments where I feel like it would behoove us as the body of Christ to really check ourselves and to to really clarify our motives, to really clarify what we're about, what we're doing in the world. Is that making any kind of sense at all? What is it exactly that's that that's driving us? Even for those, and I, you know, again, I always. I, Feel the need to make disclaimers when I'm speaking as a person who again has never had kids biologically to people that do, but you know I kind of feel like the Apostle Paul is one thing that's fun about him, you know. Whereas I think now again like people, man, we just want to find a church that our kids think are awesome, and if the kids think the church is awesome and it's and it's entertaining, then we're gonna to go to church there too, okay? And that like, you know, so long as they're kind of occupied and entertained, et cetera. And I feel like what the Apostle Paul would do is kind of be like, oh, you have kids. That's great. We'll put them to work too because we've got a kingdom movement here <laughs> and they need to be part of this. Do, do, you, see what it, what it do you see that distinction <laughs> to where life isn't ordered so much around like the church exists to prop up this family structure but rather, no matter where you come from, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have your family or whether or not, that the idea is that the kingdom of God is calling all of us to get lost in something larger, to be part of something bigger that's happening in the world, to where it's not just about us, you know? I mean, do you ever reflect about, do you ever reflect on that like in terms of your own life? So let's say you do have the pension. Let's say you do have a stable job. Let's say you do have the 2.5 kids. Let's say you do have some version of the American dream. What does that really mean? What is that What is that to pass down, right? I mean, I just feel like so much of our lives kind of get spent in this hamster wheel of just trying to find a certain kind of stability that honestly is is kind of false to begin with. The world really isn't all that stable. And no matter what it is that you think that you can nail down or tether down, it's not as secure as you think. Is this making any sense at all? I don't know if I'm just babbling or... Well, so, hmm, I don't know think about this. I just, you know, it's not... The world is not a secure place. So many of the things that we're trying to hold onto and grasp onto, there's so, so much more ephemeral than we think. And so this call to, from wherever we are, to, to make sure that our lives are about something that's bigger than just us. That our lives are about something more than just our most immediate relationships. I mean, what does that do? If we start to see the world, I really will start to at least wind this thing down, y'all. Um, to, the sense that there's just, there's something bigger than we're supposed to be part of and that the things that keep us up late at night, I just wish that, I kind of feel like for somebody I even need to give a sense of permission to, um, and I know this is a fine line, right, between selfish dreams and ambitions and kind of what God calls us to uh, to do in the world in terms of the kingdom of God. But man, I, I don't know. I just feel like sometimes people can have like a real sense of calling from God. It may not be time for you to be married. It may not be time for you to be in a serious relationship. But I think some of us would almost struggle with it like that it would be selfish or something to pursue the call that God has placed in your life. And that's just that's just not the case. That's just not the case. And I, I promise you, um, if if the time is right for you to be in a long-term committed relationship, God can find you someone else who will understand that call and who will support that call, you know? So just especially if we're in that process of discernment and trying to find the right cosmic person, I just wish I could somehow just get that whole concept out of your head that if I find the cosmic person, then everything else will be added unto me. That's shockingly not in the Bible. (laughs) It's really not how it works. Find this larger purpose of the kingdom of God, seek Jesus, seek his righteousness, seek those things first, and then the other stuff will be added and will fit in its right place. That's the way our lives are supposed to be ordered. Seek first the kingdom of God. And I don't know, it's just weird how I think, again, I don't wanna overshit this point, but I feel like even in the church, that feels like a countercultural message because I think so often the church now, it's really like, seek first the stability of you and your family And then God will add all these other things unto you. Seek first financial stability, and then God will bless you with all these things. Also, again, shockingly, not in the Bible. I don't want to minimize the importance, the significance, the vitality of our most fundamental human connections. There's so much power that's built into all that. But this is, I really am am landing with this, right? I just really believe that in the kingdom of God, that as important as those relationships are, those actually are not the relationships that most define us. Romantic love is just not what defines us. I hope I'm not being irresponsible to just drive by this here because you know I just think the the place that I'm living at if you'll give me a little bit of leeway I understand that like there I'm not trying to open up Pandora's box and like clearly this could be eight sermons in and of itself but I would tell you that one of my observations because you know I'm just at a person I'm just at a place in my life where I feel like God has put me in the midst of all these weird intersections Last Sunday morning, I was preaching at an Episcopal church and I was wearing a white alb. Wednesday night, I was preaching at a charismatic church where we had a long altar service laying hands on people and everybody was speaking in tongues. Now I'm here, which is maybe somewhere in the middle. Is that fair? (laughs) I always feel like I'm in between. I had a mentor in my life who, through a significant prayer experience a couple years ago, laid hands on me and he prayed over me. And this is one of the things he prayed. He said kind of in the process of praying, prophesying over me, if I can say it like that. Jonathan, the reason that your parents named you what they did, the reason that your name is Jonathan is because Jonathan was both Saul's son, but David's best friend. Therefore, he was always caught between. And that's your calling, is to always be in the uncomfortable in-between spaces. I thought, well, that explains a lot of my life. (laughs) And how freaking weird it is. It's weird, y'all, because in any and every direction, I have people in my life who say, you're friends with these people, so how can you be friends with those people? How does that work? But you know, I feel like God has called me to do those kind of in-between spaces. And where I'm going with that, especially as I continue to see the ways in which debate over sexuality continues to divide the church. And I feel that tension because, full disclosure all the way around, some of the most marvelous Christians I've ever known in all my life are LGBT people who have shaped me and formed me, and I love them. And I love these very conservative, traditional people who are in very traditional Christian churches who say... I'm not prejudiced, I'm not bigoted, I'm not whatever, but I just don't see this in the text, I just don't think that's Christian discipleship. And I'm just, I'm always smack dab in the middle of all these things and I watch, I watch the way the church continues to be divided over issues of sexuality and I understand why the stakes seem high and I understand and I could talk to you all day long about the contested six or seven texts. Again, another sermon for another time, but can I at least gesture in this direction? One of the things that to me seems so broken about the idea that churches divide over sexuality is I feel like it concedes these terms. What it says is that there is something, there there is a kind of identity that is deeper to us than our identity as the body of Christ. That's what that says to me. Even understanding how loaded and complicated all of that is, I just don't see schism over those issues. Because even where there's deep disagreement, the theology of the New Testament is this, and this is where this is Paul at his most radical: in Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, the thing that most defines you the thing that defines who you are, what goes straight down to the bottom of your identity, oh, I can help you with that. That's right here. This is how we know who we are. That tells us who we are. It's the body and blood of Jesus that defines us. It's who we are in Christ that defines us. That's an identity that runs deeper than anything else. You know, part of what I think that um, what makes us so contentious about these things is that we're in a context in which we're reflecting nonstop about our genital sexuality like it's all there is. It's so obsessive. You know, in the big picture of things, if I can speak eschatologically for just a moment to throw a theological word at you, if I can speak eschatologically... General sexuality and all the things that go along with that, again, not that it's unimportant, but ultimately it's passing away. (laughs) That's what Paul says here in Corinthians. The order of this world is passing away. So what I'm saying is, for as important as all those relationships are, they can't be the things that are most defining about us, especially for the body of Christ. The body and blood of Jesus is what tells us who we are and what tells us how to love the world. The body and blood of Jesus, that's, and I don't know, I don't, I'm not quite sure if y'all are feeling this the way that I am. Why don't you stand with me and that'll help me stop preaching. I'm going to pray over you and then we'll, just a moment, we'll go, we will go to the table of the Lord. I just, you know, I want to, I want to specifically pray this morning because I just, uh, I don't know, that's just what was heavy on my heart Most feeling there just be people who here who really are struggling right now with discernment questions about who you're supposed to be with and trying to find that right person. I just, man, I'm telling you, I just want to give you a sense of permission this morning to just be reminded of who you really are as God's son and God's daughter, that there is a call on your life and whether or not you feel called to some form of vocational ministry, you are called by God. And each of us are called to a mission. We're part of a larger story. And I just, I want us to take just a couple moments to reflect even this morning of of where we are in that. Maybe even to feel something of the urgency of the moment that we're in. All the things being revealed and exposed, not just in the world, but maybe even within ourselves. What in the midst of all that, what does it look like to be about our father's business in such a time? And for those of us who are already in a family, who already have that unit, what what would it look like instead of it all being about stability and instead of trying to keep our four or five safe, what would it look like even as a family for us to really see our story as part of something bigger? This covenant that God made with Abraham ultimately that would bless all the families of the earth. Where are we in that story? So, Jesus, I just lift up your beloved sons and daughters who are here. And I ask this morning specifically that you would, you know, we sung this morning about deciding to follow Jesus and no turning back. In some ways, I think, especially given the direness of the world that we're living in right now, that feels more stark than usual. that, that the people of God are called towards a mission. You have given us good work to do and we have to be about that work in the world. I just pray God that you would grant us the freedom not to order our lives just around our desires and around our passions but around your mission for us, God. I just feel like that's that in some form you want to whisper that into many of us right now. That if we'll seek first you and your kingdom, that it will seek first you and your righteousness, Lord, you will sort the other things out. But the world has taught us to kind of do all that in reverse. I just pray, God, you would free us up for your mission. And I pray, God, that you would allow us to become the kinds of people who more than anything else about us, a lot of things about our life that are important, but nothing, nothing is important as your calling on us, the calling that you've placed us as your people in the world. So give us the grace now, Lord Jesus. And I pray even, um, Lord, I just pray even for clarity for people. I I just pray specifically this morning for people who are struggling with a sense of calling right now. I I mean, I feel like somebody's wrestling with that. (laughs) A calling that's, Lord it really is you it really is your spirit but they've been wrestling and I feel like even now this is a moment of clarity that that thing that keeps welling up within them that you're saying that this is your voice this is your call pray that you would give your sons and daughters the the grace to pursue those things that you've given to them to do and that you've put in their hands to do teach us God to be your people in the world that ultimately it would be through us through the covenant that you've made to us, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just me and mine. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.